and it's the theology of the Bible. Um, my guess is some of the stuff you're going to hear today is going to be things that you've heard before. Some things might be somewhat new. And um, I just hope and that, you know, pray that we can learn together. Um, I, I want to open up just reviewing briefly some things we said last week. Because I don't want us to forget why we study and what we're doing when we study theology. Um, but I did say last week, whenever we study theology, big picture, anything that's of the scriptures, we, we always have to begin with God and not begin with man. Because if we begin with humanity, we might miss the mark on who God is. But if we begin with God, we'll always make the mark of everything else, okay? And so we begin with God. And then we also, from there, we learn about God from his word. From his word, which is why the study t topic for today, bibliology, is of utmost importance. Because if we can't trust the scriptures, then all of our theology, we can be skeptical of all of our theology. There's a suspicion behind it if this right here is not trustworthy. And so what we're going to talk about is why can we trust our Bible? Why can we trust our Bible? Um, studying theology does three things for us. And I mentioned it last week, and I started out with that. And I want to see if any of you guys remember this. It does three things for us, just studying theology. Can anybody tell us without looking at their notes? Okay, it invigorates worship. It invigorates our worship. Uh, let me just think about it. The more we come to learn about God and His ways, the more we're filled with just joy and gratitude and just awe, just utter awe of who He is. Good, what's the second one? Everybody remember? Tony looked at his notes, okay? And Mary said, it guides our prayer life. Again, if we're not grounded in theology, we can be praying things that are inconsistent with God's word and inconsistent with God's will. But if we are rooted in the Bible, we know better on what to pray for. Okay? And then again, our belief informs that. And there's a third one. What was that? Yep, it encourages your faith. It encourages your faith. The more you know, the more... I think assured you become of what you believe. Um, and again, all of this works together. Then. It, 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 that, that, that continues to inspire worship and so forth. And so I don't want us to lose sight of that. Sometimes, even last week, there were some more technical kinds of conversations. Didn't we have some? And today we'll have the same thing. Some things are a little more technical and they're important, uh, but we, we don't want to lose sight of the big picture. We want to increase in our worship, in our prayer life, and in our faith. So today we're talking about the Bible, as I mentioned. I remember the time I was counseling a young man. Uh, he was in my office at my former church. And he came in, just all kinds of questions, and I kind of walked with him for several different meetings at this point. And I could tell there was a question lingering in his mind. And I could tell he didn't want to ask it. And this has happened a few different times. Same question. And, and what I like to do is when I'm suspecting someone's wondering the question, I, I like stating it. Say, hey, are you wondering... And usually you see like the light bulbs go like, yeah, that's what I was asking. And the question is, why can I trust the Bible as opposed to the Quran, the Book of Mormon, or any other religious book? I know that's the question he was asking just by the ways he was asking questions. And that is something that we all need to know how to answer. Amen. We need to know how to respond to the question of why this word and not a Quran. And so I hope that today... By the end of our session, you will say, hey, I have a, a firmer uh, understanding 
of why the Bible is the Word of God and trustworthy. Now, again, I'm not an expert, and we're not going to leave experts. And part of that's my fault because I'm not an expert, so you're learning from a non-expert. And so, but I hope and pray that you leave more encouraged and more fortified in your faith, all right? So this is what we're going to do. Psalm 19 is a passage that highlights for us the beauty and the value of God's word. I need someone to read that for us. It's there in your handout. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. And I want you to pay attention to the different words used to describe the Bible. Who did that for us? Go for it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. All right. I just love, love, love the way Psalm 19. What are some of the benefits of God's word according to Psalm 19? It revives the soul. It revives. Any of you guys want to revive the soul? Yes. Then read your Bible. Is what Psalm 19 tells us. Yeah. What else? It's sure. Was that? Sure. It's sure? Sure. Sure. S-U-R-E. Okay. Sure. Certain. Sure. Certain. Yeah. The Bible is sure. We can be certain of it. There's confidence in it. Good. What else do we learn from, from Psalm 19 about the scriptures? Gives you wisdom. Okay, there is wisdom. Anybody need that? Yeah. Read your Bible. Yes. There's wisdom there. What else? Endures forever. It endures. It's not going to fade away. Grass withers. Flowers fade, but what? The word God's word endures forever. Good. A few other things there. It's true. It's righteous. Rejoices the heart. It rejoices the heart, you said? It says rejoicing the heart, yeah. Yep, rejoices the heart. And then that last illustration it gives, what? What does it say about it? It's a great reward. Okay, there's great reward in studying it. It's sweeter than honey. From a honeycomb, it's better than gold. I mean, this is, this is an elevation of the value of God's word. And so again, for us, it's like, okay, I want to know this word then. I, I want the wisdom. I want my soul revived. I want to know what's true. Again, we look at our, our culture, right? There's so many of these questions. How do we walk wisely? People are, are living with souls that are not revived. They're parched. Uh, people are uncertain. There's a, what, like, the question of what is truth. There's, there's a lack of joy because people ultimately need Jesus and need to know about Jesus through his word. And so that's what Psalm 19 tells us. Another part of the value of God's word is, and we won't turn there, but it, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness when he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, do you remember Satan comes to him and three different times tempts him? Satan uses the scriptures against Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? He uses the scriptures right back at him. And Jesus ultimately defends himself against temptation with the word of God. And that's another value of the scriptures. So again, we need to know why we believe these words. So there, Roman number one, what we believe about the Bible. 
There's a number of them we're going to talk about here uh, by way of introduction. And these are extremely pivotal for our faith. Uh, the first thing there is we need to know the Bible is God-breathed. God-breathed. Uh, you call that divine inspiration. And I know some people have gotten away from using the word that the Bible is inspired by God because sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what that means. Because sometimes we think about being inspired to do something. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very feeling-based. There's a lack of certainty there. And, and the Bible is just not, not a feeling. Someone's like, you know, I, I got a sense God was telling me to do this, so I wrote this down. Here's the Bible. No, it, it is God speaking. It is breathed out. So the word actually that, that Paul uses in Greek literally means God breathed. God breathed it out. And that's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us. Can someone read that passage there? All scriptures is breathed out by God. Excellent. Thank you. Notice that all scripture, which means none of what's in scripture is excluded from that. All of it is breathed out by God. And there's a value that's profitable for these various things. And then 2 Peter 1.21 tells us something else there. Can someone read that one? Great. So we see two dynamics here. We see that the scriptures is breathed out by God, but that God used human writers to write it. Do you see those in those two verses? And this is important for us. I think sometimes we don't know where this Bible came from, and we think, you mean it, did drop, it didn't drop out of the sky? Like, no. They, they, they didn't find these 66 books in a cave. It's like, oh, we found the Bible. Um, it came from somewhere, and ultimately its origin is divine. It's from God. But it came from God working through humans, broken people like you and I. And yet God has preserved his word through people. So the first thing we need to know, to understand that we believe about the Bible, is that it's breathed out by God, which makes it different from every other book on this planet. Every other book. Well, secondly, because it is breathed out by God, it has authority. That's the blank there in letter B. Authority. The Bible is our final guide for life and belief because in it are the very words of God. Therefore, to disobey or disbelieve any word of the Bible is to disobey or disbelieve God himself. Hear that. That means when there's something in the Bible that we don't agree with, we begin from the posture of, I need to change. Not that the Bible needs to change. We, believe with the, we begin with the posture of something's wrong with me, not something's wrong with the scriptures. Because it is breathed out by God and it's authoritative. Because it's authoritative then, we can also test everything by what it says. By what it says. I love what Martin Luther, the, the great Protestant reformer, says there. Notice that quote. It says, let the man who would hear God speak read the holy scriptures. You want to hear the voice of God? We all do, don't we? His voice is in the Bible. And then letter C. The Bible is inerrant. We believe in inerrancy. The Bible is without error, communicating precisely what God intended to communicate to us and does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit more in a few moments. 
But we, leave, we believe the Bible is without error, without error, in that it communicates everything that God intended to communicate to us, and it's truthful in this way, okay? That's crucial. Um, what, what's an implication of that for us as Christians from a day-to-day -day standpoint? If we believe the Bible is without error, what, did that, what does that say for us? I hear murmuring, but I couldn't hear it. If the Bible is without error, what does that do for you in your faith? What does that do for you as a Christian? It encourages you? How so? Because there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's true. Okay. It has no errors in it like everything. Yeah, it's true. You can trust it. Precisely. You can trust it. You can say, I believe what's here is true, therefore I can trust it. Were you going to add something else, Miriam? I was just going to say, it anchors us to stand and walk firmly on truth. Yeah. Because it's That's a good metaphor, anchored. We should use that. That's good. Now, that's not to say that there are not things in the Bible that are not true. Because there are, because they intend to be not true. For instance, the book of Job. When Job loses his entire family, and the only person that survives is his wife who hates his guts, and he loses all his riches, but he also gets three friends, right? Good old buddies of his. And his buddies sit down with him, and for some 20, 30 chapters of the Bible, they speak things that are not truthful. The Bible records it, not to say that what they're saying is right, but to show how they are wrong. That makes sense? Um, we also see metaphors in the Bible where they might use hyperbole, which is another word for an exaggeration intentionally. It's not because the Bible's lying when it uses hyperbole. It's using a metaphor. It's, it's a, using literary devices. So we believe the Bible is indeed without error. The next one, letter D, the Bible is sufficient. Sufficient. The Bible contains all we need for salvation, instruction for life, and understanding about God. There is no additional revelation needed in order for us to live and believe according to God's will. Hear that. We, we don't need additional revelation. God has spoken to us. That doesn't mean he ceases to speak. He continues to speak. But the Bible is all that we need for our lives. Now, if that's true, what does that mean for us? We can rely on it. If the Bible is sufficient, we can rely on it. What else? We should know our Bible, like the Word. Yes. We We've got to know it. Let, let's turn our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Okay? Ezra 7, 10. <clears throat> Ezra was a, a priest. He was a teacher of God's Word. And God's people, when they were coming back out of exile into the land... They were trying to restart things. They're back in Jerusalem. They're building walls. They're building the temple. And they want to restart their worship of their God. And Ezra was the one given the great privilege of teaching the people the scriptures. But look at Ezra 7.10. Can somebody read that? Definitely write it down. This is a passage that's worth memorizing for sure. Ezra 7.10. Hear what we learn about Ezra and what it says about the sufficiency of of the scriptures. Can someone read that? Ezra 7.10? For Ezra had set his heart to study the 
Great. Notice that. Three things he does there. What's the first one? He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. But again, we don't just study to study. He studied in order to what? It says he did it. He, he studied to do it. And not only was it going to affect his actions, but then what? Okay. I got H because I have different numbers. Sorry. F. That's where it says the Bible has been, right? Scribble differences. I know. Scribble error. Sorry. That's right. It's Byzantine. I got the Byzantine. I added one. Um, <laughs> what is so, so compelling to me here is this, guys. Um, as critical as Christians are searching the word and seeking to understand it, you better believe the opponents of our faith are doing the same. They're doing the same. If you can disprove this book, the entire Christian faith goes out the window. Amen. And 2,000 years later, we're still holding it, preaching it, and teaching it. Amen. That's compelling, family. Yes. All right? One such person who was an atheist, a guy named Lee Strobel. He was an atheist, and uh, he was a journalist trained at the University of Missouri, got a law degree from Yale Law School. He was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune and some other papers. This guy knows how to do research. He's got a critical eye, and he was an atheist, self-proclaimed. His world got rocked, I think it was 1981, when his wife came home and said she was a Christian. And then from that point on, he said it as his ambition to disprove the Christian faith. And for two years, he interviewed scholars of all over the map about the truthfulness of God's word, the claims of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. And then Lee writes this, or he says this actually, in an interview. He says, for years I was a skeptic of the Bible, not because I thoroughly studied it and concluded it was unreliable, but because I had heard enough snippets of criticism to poison my view of the book. I think that's the vast majority of people in your lives. And then he says, it wasn't until I analyzed the Bible thoroughly that I concluded it had a divine origin. That's significant. Its origin is with God, he's saying. The Bible is based on a key eyewitness accounts. It has repeatedly been corroborated by archaeological discoveries. It has specific predictions that were made hundreds of years in advance that were literally fulfilled against all mathematical odds. And it contains credible and well-documented miracles that confirm its message. And then he wrote the book, <laughs> The Case for Christ. Which, by the way, the movie came out. Have you guys seen yeah. that? I haven't seen that thing yet. Is it good? The Case for Christ. It came out this year, the movie. I, I get chills thinking about that. Here's a guy who has all the inspiration in the world to disprove the Bible and has all the training in the world to do it and all the experience and comes out a follower of Jesus. Pretty cool. So Roman numeral number three. It's a question we started with. Can I trust the Bible in my hands? Is it reliable? Well, yes. From a manuscript standpoint. From a manuscript standpoint, I mentioned the 5,800 manuscripts, um, and, I, and I forget how it's parsed out. But but if we start broadening other qualifications for manuscript, we start getting into tens of thousands of evidences of the Bible in our hands. 
What's really cool, by the way, is some of our, our evidences of the reliability of the Bible are the church fathers' sermons. You know, they, they preach a sermon in the year, uh, let's say hypothetically, 220 A.D., and they quote, you know, Genesis 5. Well, they quote it word for word, and they're like, well, there it is. So now we, we take that quotation, and we can, you know, compare it with other manuscripts. And it's just remarkable to see the different creative ways um, that we just can be so confident. Is it reliable? Yes, from a manuscript standpoint, and yes, from an archaeological standpoint. I just uh, watched a short video on the reliability of the, of the uh, walls of Jericho coming down. And, and believe it, there are people out there who are using their life to disprove the archaeological evidence of the Bible. And then there are faithful, godly men and women who are there literally, literally in the trenches doing the work. I had a professor of mine at Trinity who was one of the leading Egyptologists in the world. And... Um, I mean, super nerdy dude. And he was, he, was my, he was my professor for a class, and he was so excited talking about his excavations in Egypt to try to confirm the, the, the Jewish captivity. I mean, just, it's just remarkable that, that God has given passions for some people to do that kind of work. Super cool. And by the way, there is an archaeological study Bible which starts drawing out at different points um, where there's archaeological evidence to support the biblical text. It's kind of cool. Letter C, yes, we can also believe it's reliable from a prophetic standpoint. I love how Strobel mentioned that there are fulfilled prophecies that go against all mathematical odds. I mean, just, just think about the prophecies we know about. Just think of Jesus' virgin birth, for crying out loud. Isaiah 7, 14, behold, the virgin will be with child. Matthew, is that one or two? Mary, a virgin, is with her child. That's impossible God did it. Isaiah was written some you know, five, six hundred years, by the way, before Jesus came on the scene. The book of Daniel, I think it's in chapter 8, talks about the coming of the Greek Empire and this great leader, which at the time hadn't arisen. And who's the great leader of the Greek Empire? Alexander. Alexander the Great. And it talks about how he'll die suddenly, and from him, four of his generals will take the rule. That's the Roman Empire. And how one of those generals would be the, the leading one. I mean, Daniel talks about this before it happens, hundreds of years before it happens. Isaiah 53 talks about how we like sheep go astray, and God laid on him this one, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. Jesus. Zephaniah, I'm sorry, Zechariah 12.10 talks about how God's chosen one is going to be pierced. Jesus was pierced on the cross. I mean, you can't plan that stuff. Jesus could not find a way for him to get turned over in order to get pierced to fulfill a prophecy. God did it. They could have poisoned him, but it wouldn't be a fulfillment then. And then letter D, yes, we believe it's reliable from an internal evidence standpoint. And we just compare one passage to the next over 1,500-year period. I mean, just think the resurrection of Jesus. The Gospels talk about it. Paul talks about it. The whole New Testament talks about it. And to this day, no one's been able to disprove the fact that Jesus is alive. That should be a pretty easy thing to disprove, by the way. A dead person is alive or dead. But he's alive. So I hope you know you can trust your Bible. And with these tools, you can understand that when your friends, your coworkers come and they challenge your faith, don't be like, don't, don't. 
like freak out. They tell you, you know, there's errors. Well, what, what do you mean by errors? There's contradictions. Okay, show me. Right? Usually it's what they hear. Um, the Bible is in beautiful harmony. Um, and if there are errors in the original manuscripts, I'm sure that's not even what they're referring to because they just don't know. But we, again, going back to the definition of inerrancy, remember we said, uh, actually let's turn our hand up there. That's the first page, inerrancy. The Bible is without error communicating precisely what God intended to communicate to us and does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. See, these, these manuscript differences do not undermine our belief and our confidence in inerrancy. All right, I want, to, I want to get extremely practical here. Before I do that, just any lingering questions behind some of the technical, theological things we talked about? Do you feel like you're like, okay, I'm, I don't know what to think about this? Do you feel like, no, I'm glad I know this? Do you feel I'm encouraged? Do you feel I'm kind of, I'm kind of unsure? I'm curious <coughs> where you're at. I'm kind of unsure. I mean, if I, I go to the gas station and I see my uh, my buddies that are Muslims and stuff, and they'll pick up the Quran and say the same thing. Hey, this is the word of Allah, and it's correct, and it's, there's no errors in it. And I say the same thing with my book, and we're at a standstill. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what, 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 do I pick one of these to point out to them? No, I don't, I don't think... See... I, I, I feel like when we, when we debate people who don't know Jesus. Um, and we can show the evidences for Christian faith. And, and God, by, his, by the Spirit, can, can, can definitely change their, their hearts and eyes. But when it comes down to it, uh, the most compelling thing about the gospel is what it does to a person. Um, you know, we know we're forgiven. We have the certainty of heaven. No Muslim will say either, unless they blow themselves up, honestly. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's true. No, well, they're through works. There's no certainty. There's no certainty, um, but the promise that and I don't know I don't I have not read the Quran I mean God in it um, from what I understand there's a promise of 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 life if you die a martyr um, but there's no abundant life there I mean, the, the Christian faith is very different and so I think that's how we that's how we share. I mean we can show the evidences behind it but the truth of the matter is um, what does the gospel do to us. And I think that's, that's most compelling. And you can't argue with the fact that Jesus changes lives. That, that sinners are made righteous in God's sight. Um, that those who were slaves to sin are now alive in Christ. I mean, you go on and on and on. And so that's, that's, that's the power of the gospel that's proclaimed in the Bible. Um, so I think when you're at a standstill, you just share with them the gospel. Um, as, as opposed to trying to disprove the Quran. I'm not saying you can't. I'm sure there, there are ways. I mean, there are some apologists who you know, defend the faith against. A guy named Sam Shamoon, for instance, does that very well. But uh, Sam Shamoon, he was a former Muslim. He's, uh, he's a local. He lives in the area. Cool. Yeah. We should get him here one day, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. He's a beast, man. I do solid. Yeah. Is there a hand? Yes. Not so much what I can do with this information, but so much what it does to my heart. And 
believing blindly is not so blind. Mm. I'm about to dance right here. <laughs> I mean, it's this right here. Theology ought to encourage our faith. We just did some bibliology. That ought to encourage our faith. Yeah. Brent? Think about something like the theme of the garden. Uh, the Bible begins in a garden. And in the garden, the first Adam failed. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the book of you know, the Gospels. There's another garden of Gethsemane. And the second Adam succeeds. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh-huh. Fast forward to the last chapter of Revelation. There's another garden. Yeah. And it says, now we have the right to eat of the tree of life again. Mm-hmm. And that's eternity. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you see the threads. It's, just, it's, it's amazing. And that's, that's only one. That's a thread of garden. And there's so many others. Erica? No, I was just going to say the same thing, but this is one of my Flying cow. did not give us the original copies because we are such idolaters at heart, honestly. I mean, uh, Martin Luther joked that uh, so many, you know, the Catholic Church collects relics, 
And, you know, so many churches claim to have a piece of the cross. He says, there's so many pieces of the cross, they could build Noah's Ark with it. <laughs> and like, like, that's typical Luther. He's always sarcastic. But, yeah, I mean, we, we're such idolaters. But God in his mercy has chosen to preserve his word in the only ways he could do it. I mean, you know, if we live 90 years, 100 years, it's out of our control. But God preserves it. He's the thread that takes it from one generation to the next. And here we are, 2017. Well, let's get practical here, okay? 2 Timothy 2.15. It tells us, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So now, you, knowing what you know, you have an obligation to handle this word rightly. It is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians tells us in as this Hebrews. Um, talking about the English translations, there's a guy named William Tyndale in the 16th century. And he was the one, from what we understand, to, put, to do the first translation into English from Greek and Hebrew. That's in the 1500s. He's the first one to do it. And as he did it, he began to believe that the scriptures was the final authority. Not the Pope, not the councils, but the scriptures. He'd end up, because he followed the scriptures, getting killed for his faith. He was tied up to a stake, but then they strangled him. And after they strangled him, they burned up his body. Before him, there's a guy named John Wycliffe who similarly wanted to put the, the Bible into English, and he began to do it. I don't think he ever completed it, which is why Tyndale was first. He ended up dying a natural death, but his writings lived on, to the extent which uh, generations later, when the Reformation was happening and the Catholic Church saw that Wycliffe was writing these things, they dug up his body to burn it in order to deem him a heretic because they believed that the Word of God is the final authority. And then we have a guy, like I mentioned, Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a, one who stood up to the Catholic Church and the authority of the church. And uh, He wrote this, he says, For some years now, I have read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. It's a man committed to the word. He says, The neglect of scripture, even by spiritual leaders, is one of the greatest evils in the world. Everything else, arts or literature, is pursued and practiced day and night. And there is no end of labor and effort. But holy scripture is neglected as though there were no need of it. And then he says this, because the Catholic Church was after him. They, they wanted to burn up his works. Because he wrote against it. He wrote in favor of the scriptures as our authority. He wrote against the Pope. He says, let them destroy my works. I deserve nothing better. For all my wish has been to lead souls to the Bible so that they might afterwards neglect my writings. <laughs> he says, great God, if we had a knowledge of scripture, what need would there be of any books of mine? Pretty cool, huh? Luther was put on trial for his writings, for his belief in the scriptures, and knowing that if he did not reverse his beliefs, recant, uh, that he was going to get the death penalty. 
And so he was asked under trial, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And he says, he says this, he says, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And he says, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. God preserved Luther. He was, a, he was kidnapped by a friend. They didn't know that. Is it? This year is the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Church of Wittenberg, Germany, which started the Protestant Reformation. And so um, this is the 500 years. It was, it was October, it was Halloween, uh, 1517. Which, by the way, I'll, I'll give a quick commercial. Um, I was invited to, to teach at a church on the south side, Progressive Baptist Church, a workshop on, on the theology of salvation, which I'm teaching next week. But I'm, I'm going to do it in two parts. And that conference is dedicated to a celebration of the Reformation, uh, the 500-year anniversary. And so my, my, my uh, doctoral advisor, Trinity, is going to be speaking there as well as a pastor from Texas. And so you guys are all invited. Uh, my, my friend, the pastor there, Charlie Dates, has offered, you know, said, hey, please extend the invitation. So I'll put that out there. I'll just tell you guys more about it. But we'll learn more about the Reformation there. Martin Luther saw the value of the scriptures. Tyndale, Wycliffe. And man, countless other men and women whose names aren't remembered by history. So this is what we got to do, family. You got to read our Bibles. Um, we haven't got time to talk about how to study the Bible right now. But let me give you some bird's eye applications when you sit down to read your Bible. First of all, pick a place, a time, have a plan. You're not going to read the Bible by accident tomorrow. I'm sure your life is as busy as mine. It just doesn't get, it's not going to happen, right? So you got a plan. Are you going to read your Bible tomorrow morning, yeah. during your lunch break, during your commute, or at night? you got to pick one because it's not going to happen. You know, you might start out in the morning. You might need to defer to lunch and then keep deferring, but get to it. Have a plan. And when you sit down to read your Bible, even if it's for 15 minutes, crying out loud, 24 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. Lord, take 15 minutes. Start with prayer. Something I like to pray is kind of what I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, I pray, God, open my eyes. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words. You've regenerated me, and you fill me. Help me now see what your word says. And like I pray oftentimes Sunday morning, God, give me ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, it's just me humbling myself before God. Sometimes i got to fight to do that because I'm in a rush. But that, that changes my posture. And then determine to read through an entire book of the Bible. Not necessarily at once, we'll get to this. But start at the first chapter of a, the book of the Bible and just every day choose to read a chapter or a paragraph. You've you got to do it. Here's why. The first blank there, it establishes consistency. You know what you're supposed to read the next day. You ever sit down like, oh, I don't know what to read today. Well, if you read through a book of the Bible, you pick up where you left off yesterday. So, so now you, you have a plan. You know what you're doing. Um, one thing I, I, I keep in my Bible... I have this list right here, all, all 66 books of the Bible in every chapter. And I started a book, and I check it off when I've read it. And so I just, 
I read chapter 7 today, check it off. Tomorrow 8, check it off. You know, next day I might do three chapters. And I just I printed this thing out, keep it tucked in my Bible, and I, I go at it one at a time. And maybe you do that too. But you got to start in chapter 1 and get through it. It builds consistency. Secondly, it develops understanding. You understand the flow of a book better. If you just drop into, um, let's see, Ephesians 4, you don't, you don't know where it was, where, what Paul just said in 1, 2, and 3. So if you start in 1 and work your way forward, it, it, it builds your understanding. You know what's going on. And then thirdly, it builds anticipation. You want to know what's going to happen next. And this is especially the case for books you haven't read in a while. Maybe stories you, you, you've heard before. Um, this past men's retreat, we, we went through the book of Jonah together. Our, our, our speaker preached through it. And I think Jonah's one of those stories where everybody knows about, but nobody knows. We think we know it, but we don't know it. Uh, and most, most stories of the Bible are like that. We think we know David and Goliath until we realize it's not about slaying our giants. We, we don't, do, we, do we know why David went up against Goliath? Well, because he was mad because Goliath marked, uh, mocked the armies of God, which is God himself. And then Goliath tells David, um, you know, what can your God do to rescue you out of my hand? And we realize the story of David and Goliath is a battle between Goliath's God and David's God. That's what the story's about. And so, again, when we read through books and read through chapters, we get to understanding the whole whole thing. It builds anticipation. All right, here's ways to have devotions by reading through an entire book of the Bible. You can do it in one sitting. Maybe it's... Book of Ephesians, six chapters, sit down and read it over half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it takes. Um, I had a professor in school that made us do that with the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I was like, it's going to take me hours, and it did, but I'm glad I did it. I haven't done it again, but I'm glad I did that. <laughs> you can read through a book of the Bible over a period of a month or two. That's usually what I do. Just take my time through it. I don't want to rush. Sometimes you can rush quickly and you don't get everything, but you get the big picture, and that's helpful too. Uh, you can read through a book following the life of a person, like David in First and Second Samuel, so you have a particular eye toward things happening with David's life. Or you can end up doing something that's not necessarily through a particular through a book of the Bible. You can do more like a word study. I'm going to study the word joy in the scriptures, or the word hope, or love, or the life of Jesus. And then lastly there, use a pen. Use a pen and write in your Bible. The Bible is the word of God. The paper there is not like holy paper. The words are the holy words of God. Write in your Bible. Underline, circle, put notes in the margin. What I do is I put notes in the margin of my Bible that trigger something for me. I want to find the word joy. I know oh, there's joy in Philippians. Me, and I'll see the word joy in my margin. That's what I do when it comes up. Um, just write notes in the margin of your Bible. Uh, journal. Keep a journal. It helps reflect. You can go back to it. You can see where you've come from. You can articulate your thoughts. Make an outline of the passage. Okay, what's going on? This morning, uh, was that this morning? No, it was this morning. I read, uh, uh, no, that was yesterday, this, the, the parable of the soils. Jesus talks about that. Some, some fell on good soils. And, and just I outlined the passage. That was helpful for me to understand it better. Uh, summarize the passage in 15 words or less. That's a good, you know, you read a chapter... Put that chapter in one sentence. It'll make you think through it. Or just simply write down notes, things you observe. I don't have here, but I, I, don't be discouraged. You know, I have far more bad days in devotion times than I have good ones. Uh, and I'm sure probably most, if not all of us, would affirm the same thing. 
but don't stop it. You know, some days are discipline, and other days are delight. But don't stop the discipline because you'll never get to the delight. I want to read Psalm 119 here at the bottom of your sheet. If you need a little more inspiration on why you should study the Bible, here it is. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. Is his word stored in your heart? That I might not sin against you. That's what it helps us do. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There's the psalmist. All right. One other thing I'm going to read, but question. This is a real brief thing. I'm going to read a part of a hymn. But are there any questions? Big picture. I know, again, that fire hydrant was open. You were drinking. Any lingering questions or thoughts, things that popped up that you want to share? No. Well, here it is. There's an old hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And um, I think it's an appropriate one to read. I don't think we all know it. I can't sing it. Um, and I'm a horrible leader in that too. So, But it says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for, re who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am that God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. It's God's, uh, God's word does that for us. It's a firm foundation, and our faith is in his excellent word. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. Indeed, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it does pierce our hearts and divides joint and marrow, God. And so, Lord, we thank you for piercing our hearts. God, I'm just so thankful, even as Mighty said, said that, that, that these truths give us a backbone to our faith, God. We don't need to shy away when intellectuals challenge us, God. We may not always have the answers, but we stand on a foundation that is firm. It is Jesus. It is you, Almighty God. And it's what you've chosen to preserve, your word. We worship you. We don't worship our Bibles. We worship the God of the Bible. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would submit ourselves under its authority, that we would devote ourselves to, to knowing it, as Ezra did, that we would be committed to doing it, lest we become hypocritical, that we would be committed to teaching it lest we hoard these riches. So, Father, we rejoice in you. Thank you, God, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Just one final thing. So, so as you know, we have um, a group of Moody students who are...